0: Hi, Remember Me listeners. We know you guys love music, but do we have any vinyl record collectors like me? If so, you need to check out our sponsor, Vinyl Confessions. Vinyl Confessions is a carefully curated online vinyl record shop with a mission to heal the world of its pain one record at a time. This small business has an amazing selection of new vinyl records, everything from classic live shows, amazing jazz albums, and many new releases like Taylor Swift's Fearless album. Vinyl Confessions has given our listeners a 20% off code to go check them out. So you're going to go to VinylConfessions.com. That's vinyl without the I com and use code REMEMBERME for 20% off at checkout.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Rachel. And I'm Maria, and we're the hosts of Remember Me. This podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with dementia.
0: We hope this episode helps you feel more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always
1: accept the good. This is Remember Me.
0: We are so honored to have my dad, Gary, on the podcast. Welcome. Hello, Gary.
2: Thank you very much.
0: I am so excited to have you on, and I think it's a perfect bookend to the season. We started with Rachel's mom, ending with my dad. So welcome.
2: It's a blessing to be with you both tonight, and I want to congratulate you on this beautiful podcast. Remember me. It's awesome to listen to the podcast each week and to be able to see my wedding picture on the face.
0: Yes. All <laughs> oh, that's right. Fun fact. I don't know if everybody knows that. Some people think it's a stock photo, but no. It's a very um,
1: movie-type kiss, can I say? Because I think, who's smiling? Your mom's like smiling, and your dad's going in for it. Like, okay, it's very. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: I like it. <laughs> I love Maybe it.
2: A boy from Maine marrying a beautiful Greek girl.
0: I love it so I am gonna try and take more of a backseat in this episode we will see I might need to go on mute and cry a little bit, just fine. So I'm going to like hand over.
1: Wow. Pass
0: the baton.
1: I get the big girl
0: seat? So okay. you get to ask the first question today.
1: Oh, okay. I have to do, I have to channel Maria. Hold on. Let me get my sweet voice. Um, Gary, as a listener of the podcast, you know that we like to just jump right in and ask, what was the first? realization that you had, Hmm, something is off or something is not right with Leah.
2: So my wife is a very talented artist, graphic designer, and capable of doing many things on a computer. So the priest at church asked to have a flyer created. And I said, okay, Leah can you help do this. We need this for an event coming up in a couple of weeks and sat down, gave her her computer. And it was a relatively simple task for her to essentially align a picture and some words under it and maybe put some flowers around it or something like that. And she sat there staring at the screen and she could not figure out how to move some words up around the picture, no matter what I did to show her to crop it or whatever, that concept would not work in her brain. And she she couldn't complete the task.
1: And do you think she was aware that she couldn't figure it out?
2: I don't know at that time if she didn't know what, if she knew what was going on around her.
1: So you're sitting at the desk with her and this is happening. Did you make any decisions then, or did you just chalk it up to she's having a off day?
2: Uh, I think I was probably one of those impatient husbands who was saying, why can't you do this? And, um, you know, we probably just pass it off as a frustrating day. An impatient husband.
1: Hmm. I think I, I, think I, <laughs> I think I might have one of those. I think we all have one of those, right? I'm definitely an impatient wife. Like, I'll totally own it. Okay, back to Leah. So after that, kind of walk us through what you saw. Was there more behavior? Was there similar situations?
2: So there was a couple of other things that kind of got us to the point where we thought something just wasn't right. Uh, one I remember is we went camping uh, at Fourth Cliff with our 1970s uh, Airstream camper. And I set her up, we had dinner, and then I poured her a glass of wine and I was puttering around outside, maybe came back in 15 or 30 minutes later, and she was completely slurring her words. And I was like, what I leave the camper and you decide to get drunk and you know, what's going on now, of course it had nothing to do with that. At that point, I looked at the bottle and there was only the glass that I had poured for her. So it didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Then we started to see that she would essentially use the word thing for every object that she was referring to. A person was a thing. The TV was a thing the dog was a thing. And so she started to be unable to communicate as articulately as she had done in the past.
1: And that was sort of your sign. Like we have to get some medical intervention here.
2: Yeah. We thought that, you know, either she was having some, you know, mental issues or physical issues that were contributing to her inability to focus or something.
1: Mm -hmm. And you eventually took her to her doctor. And what was that first visit?
2: Well, we took her into the PCP and uh, it was one of those, you know, conversations with the PCP, an elderly doctor. Hi, Leah. It's nice to see you. I explained the situation and the doctor ran Leah through a few tests about, you know, recalling words in order, uh, you know, a clock with uh, 10, two o'clock on it, drawn on a piece of paper and asked Leah to kind of communicate what was going on. And I think pretty quickly the PCP knew that something wasn't just right, um, but she was said, Hey, I'm not an expert. You know, we need to send you someplace else to get you know, more expert opinion.
1: And I'm assuming because I know you, you did that. And what was the result there?
2: So we, uh, before we went in, we actually got a brain scan done and uh, she had had Bell's palsy about six, eight years earlier. So we had kind of a baseline. To compare it to. So uh, we struggled to get down into the city of Boston and get into this cluster of buildings and then, you know, up down into the bowels of this uh, hospital uh, where the neurologist met us and went through the diagnosis process. Again, similar kinds of word activities and, and drawing and, and understanding what's going on around and then came to the diagnosis that uh, she probably had FTD primary progressive aphasia, and that her brain scan indicated that her frontal lobe was diminishing. It was getting smaller and that the, uh, the light and dark indicated that she was probably having FTD.
1: So this was all in one appointment,
2: all in the first appointment with a neurologist. Yes.
1: I'm Maria. We hear like we had to go to 14 different neurologists to get the correct
0: I like reflect on this a lot because I'm sure my dad will get into this later, but we used to live in D.C. My mom lived there her whole life. And just this idea that we came up here and then my mom got diagnosed in probably one of the biggest medical communities in the country in a town where they actually have an FTD unit at Mass General Hospital. It just is like it's kind of crazy. But I also feel like it's a unique experience my dad has that he was starting to get an inkling, something was wrong, and then was smacked in the face with a terminal illness.
1: Yeah, which is worse, not knowing and, you know, going through all these hoops and doctor visits and this and that are just right away. Here you go. Here it is.
2: I know I've attended many support groups for the FTD group in Boston, and it is definitely a recurring theme of hearing people struggle with getting to a diagnosis. That wasn't an issue that we faced, but I I see how people struggle with Mm -hmm. getting to that diagnosis.
1: I know it's one of Maria's most favorite questions and Maria, I don't know if you're up to asking it or not, but once they gave you the diagnosis and they showed you the brain scan and the clock and all of that, and they said, it looks like it's FTD. What did they do? Here's a pamphlet or what was their, you know, sort of care plan for
2: her? So I asked that question. I said, okay, so what's the care plan for Leah? And they looked at me and they said, okay, well, you can come back in three months. And I'm assuming there's some sort of process. We're going to follow testing and, you know, rehab or something. I don't know. And uh, so we'll come back in April, right? He goes, April, May, June, whatever works for you. And I was Mm -hmm. like, so there is no care plan for her. And he didn't really answer it that way directly. So then I said, okay, well, what's it like to be able to be a doctor, to diagnose this horrific thing, and then not be able to treat it in any way, shape, or form? And he essentially said, well, you realize that out of 150 doctors in my class, I was one of two who picked being a neurologist, and we were the redheaded stepchildren of our class. Mm -hmm. And so that told me that I had no confidence in this doctor although he had made the diagnosis and that we were not going to come back to that hospital.
1: Wow, You leave this hospital. What is Leah's reaction? Does she have one?
2: At this point, she's a lot quieter than she's been in our whole marriage. So she's reserved and not really talking about much what's going on. Maybe she was processing it, but there was no real discussion as to the diagnosis that she'd been given. She just kind of sat next to me and we went home.
1: And because we all know Maria so well, we know that there was a dual diagnosis for Leah. Can you tell us a little bit about how the ALS component came to light?
2: Yes. So the doctor recommended that we get a a follow-up with another neurologist to get an EMG test. So um, when I sleep next to my wife at night, I generally have my arm over her body and touching her arm. And we had started to notice twitching in her right arm. And so that was a signal for the doctor to say, okay, you you need to go get this EMG test. And the test essentially uh, puts electrodes on different ends of muscles in the arms and the legs, and they run electricity through it and they see how the muscles react. And so the doctor essentially said, well, I definitely see upper motor neuron disease, which of course meant nothing to me. I had no idea what that meant. And unfortunately this doctor probably shouldn't have been practicing that day. She had stayed up all night because it was election night in 2016. And she, uh, she was really a little bit incoherent. And so when my wife started to ask questions about what does this mean, you know, she essentially said, you've got ALS and you've got one to three years to live. Uh, just like that. No bedside man or nothing. And my wife uh, essentially just muttered over and over, I'm going to die in a year. I'm going to die in a year. I'm going to die in a year.
1: Was there any emotion behind it? Did she was did she seem worried or scared or was it more of like the PPA kind of rote obsession with the same word?
2: I think it was obsession with some anxiety. Yeah, I bet so. Because she was starting to realize something now Mm -hmm. related to her diagnosis. And of course, we didn't know what to do. She had FTD and ALS combined. Who has this? I'd never heard of it.
1: Mhm. So that's the million dollar question. What did you do? You guys get these <laughs> diagnoses within what? Weeks of each other? A week, two a weeks?
2: Week. Yeah. So her first neurology test was on Halloween and the second one was on my birthday, November 9th.
1: Oh, great. Happy yeah. birthday. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So you guys get these two diagnoses within a week of each other. What do you do?
2: Well, the first thing I was concerned about was are we sure? So I wanted to get a second opinion. So I started calling anybody and everybody that I knew was a doctor to try and figure out, okay, I'm not going back to that hospital. Is there another one that we could go to that can help us out? And there was somebody that I knew that pointed us towards this uh, world renowned doctor at MGH.
1: Shout out MGH. (laughs) So you, you get in, I'm assuming. And they confirmed the diagnosis. I'm also assuming that.
2: They did. They confirmed it.
1: And did they offer any care plan or support or anything along those lines?
2: It was a completely different attitude to kind of supporting the family. Now, in the end of the day, from uh, FTD and ALS, there was really no treatment per se to take care of my wife. She did talk, take some real off for ALS. Uh, but essentially that just kind of slows things down for maybe a three month extension in your lifespan. But the real difference was they were focused on how to support her and the family in day to day living. So I was entered into uh, a study that allowed me to essentially have um, a dedicated caregiver uh, support person. And so I was able to have weekly calls with Katie Brandt, who is my guardian angel And she helped me get through the shock and awe of getting this awful uh, news and figuring out strategies to kind of cope Mm -hmm. and get the care and support to help my wife live as vibrant a life as possible.
1: And during these calls, did she provide like, this is what you're gonna do next? Or was it more quote unquote, like a therapy? Let's talk about how you're feeling.
2: So it was kind of a mix, but I kind of expected the, okay, this is what happens next. This is what happens next. This is what happens next. But Katie is so good at what she does that she doesn't really kind of lead you down that path. She kind of allows you to kind of ask the questions that get into that scenario of, okay, well, we should be talking about this right now. And so I thought her style was very strong in that it didn't kind of foreshadow the worst. It allowed me to cope with whatever that symptom was that we were dealing with right at that time.
1: That sounds super helpful.
2: Yep. I, I pray that everybody gets that kind of support over time because having somebody who understands what you're going to encounter and coping strategies for overcoming or, or at least just getting through the day, uh, you know, is critical.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. And as a side note to anyone who's listening, who's new to the podcast, Katie Brandt tells her story in our first season and is featured on many episodes, sharing her expertise. She lost her husband at um, 32,
1: something crazy. It was
2: really, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: So along the lines of like Katie Brandt and these coping strategies, what was going through your mind? Here you are, you're watching Leah, you know, live day to day. You have a job, you have kids. How did you get through this?
2: It was really hard. I think the first challenge that I faced with that was, you know, I was working full time, but I recognized that we could only have it one year. And I didn't really know how to deal with that. So I talked to my folks at my company and asked them for kind of the maximum latitude. I started working from home. And we came up with the idea that it was, we were going to have the best summer ever, you know, the Boston EVA, mm-hmm. EVAH. Mm-hmm. And one of our strategies was that we were going to live life on the move. We were not going to let life slow us down. We were going to keep moving and doing as much as we could. So in that first year, we made trips to the Cape. We went up to Lake Winnipesaukee. We went camping. We did stuff all the time. And in some ways, that was to keep me sane because it was you know, very sad to see my wife start to decline.
1: And do you think she enjoyed it? Was she able to express that she was enjoying this best summer ever?
2: I don't think there's anybody who was more graceful than my wife in dealing with something like this. Yeah. So she was dancing. We have videos of her dancing by herself outside at Lake Winnipesaukee in the sunset. And the music is going, she's dancing, she's smiling, and you can see that she's just truly enjoying her life at that point. And she was always smiling. I never heard her get down and frustrated and negative in any way, shape or form through the rest of her life. I Mm. never saw that.
1: No wonder her and Frank have so many similarities, because that's the outlook that we try and push on our podcast is like accepting the good and looking at the light and all that. And it sounds like Leah just fit right in. Um, I think one thing that we haven't really talked about is how you, and I guess Leah told your kids, do you so, remember?
2: Uh, she was very. She did not want anybody to know. She gradually kind of understood what was going on. And I think we told the kids around Thanksgiving. And I actually talked to the spouses and before I talked to my kids. So I think it was the weekend after we got the diagnosis. And I told them all, hey, guys, something bad's happening here. And we're going to get together and talk about this. I need you to watch and make sure that everybody's okay. So, um, you know, they all came to the house around Thanksgiving and uh, we sat in this big uh, circular couch that we had. And I explained to them what was going on, and Leah kind of sat there in the middle of it, you know, as I explained what the diagnosis was.
1: And Maria balls in your court. Do you remember? Of course, I remember. And what was it like? Um, it, it was like the worst day of my life. Did you think something was wrong before?
0: Yes. You guys I, were on the circular cap? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I mean. I knew they were getting tests. I, she was changing like really fast. Mm-hmm. I, I knew it was bad. And I had told one of my girlfriends around the time my dad was seeing doctors that I knew whatever it was, it was not going to get better. I just knew. Do you remember talking to your siblings without your
1: parents in the room or on the phone or whatever and saying like, gosh, you know, what, what are we going to do? Yeah. Or was it just everybody kind of?
0: Uh, I don't remember like exact conversations, but like you know, there were some family gatherings where she wasn't acting like herself, and mm-hmm. everyone kind of had a different take of what it could be. but I think everybody did think something was wrong
1: so I know you guys have a big family, and I also know that uh Leah's mom is actually still alive, so what was it like? seeing her for the first time? And how was her reaction to this news?
2: Well, Leah really didn't want anybody else to know that she had this diagnosis. She did. She told me not to tell people like her sister, her mother or whatever, but it happened that her mother was coming back from Greece, a trip to Greece And um, we actually met them at this hotel in in Maryland. It was a a coincidence. We were there for some event and somehow we met in Maryland, even though we lived in in Massachusetts and they lived in Nebraska. We met in Maryland and we're at this this hotel and seeing each other. And my mother-in-law is looking at her daughter and we sit down next to the table and her response shocked me. She said to me, why is this happening to me and i looked at her and i was like what are you talking about this is happening to your daughter not to you but it was really awkward for me and shocking to learn that she actually wasn't concerned about her daughter at that point she was concerned about the impact to her that her daughter was sick you understand what i said
0: oh yeah and Anyone who wants to go back and reference my aunt's episode, there's more context there. But I I was concerned almost just like how Yaya was going to understand because, I mean, I know she speaks English, but she's, you know, pretends not to know stuff sometimes (laughs) and... I just didn't know, you know, my mom's getting this diagnosis that we don't even understand and we've never heard of. Like, How is it going to be translated to my 90-something-year-old Greek grandmother?
1: It's hard when people don't live up to your expectations of how they should respond. I've had a few too.
2: That's a good point. We shouldn't cast expectations on other people because you never know how they're going to react.
1: That's what my husband always says. Put your expectations to the ground and anything over is better. I'm like, well, or not just be a good human being and live up to my expectations. <laughs> um, so after you guys told the kids and the best summer ever and all of that, what was the progression? Like, what was it like watching it?
2: So I'll start by saying that my wife, what, her mom was seven months pregnant with her when she came over from Greece to the United States. And her family is from the island of Naxos and a beautiful town called Apirentos, one of those amphitheater towns in, uh, in the mountains of, of Greece. So I describe the progression as, as like the steps going up to the horio, the, the village there. So uh, in order to go from the, the road up to the, the hill in the city, you have to walk up, I don't know, like 300 steps. And you get exhausted going up those steps to go into the mountain. You also have to do the same thing to come back down to the road, but the steps are uneven. They're not the same height. They're not the same length. And so um, her progression was like descending those steps. There were changes that took place. Some that were rapid, some that took a long time, but you always knew that there was something changing over time. So. The first thing we saw is that I was still working on a proposal at Booz Allen and um, it was down in Huntsville, Alabama. So I decided I couldn't leave her at home. So I took her with me. So she was traveling with me down uh, to Huntsville and she stayed in a hotel. And um, I didn't even know at the time I, I gave her the keys to the car. She'd drive around, whatever. I was crazy. But we started to see like behavioral changes like uh, OCD, like kinds of things. Like she would find rocks in ashtrays and I'd come back to the hotel room and there'd be 10 plastic cups filled with these little tiny pebble rocks. Mm -hmm. Um, Then as we got back, we started to see she wanted to go to the Dollar Tree every day. And it was just a thing. I want to go to Dollar Tree. And then there was, uh, you know, she wanted to have a glass of wine at five o'clock every night. It's five o'clock somewhere. She started having all these little catchphrases, all these little cute little sayings. I have to really- agree
1: with the five o'clock somewhere.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so we saw started to see those kinds of things. So many kind of behavioral things that in some behavioral variant kind of people see Thank God she was always pleasant and, you know, workable. She was persistent, um, Mm -hmm. but we didn't see any negative flare-ups or anything like that. But unfortunately, as it progressed over time, you know, she got to the point where she could no longer speak. So that was the first major one when she could no longer voice any of her words. Then we got to a point where she was choking, and so it's interesting, most dementia patients uh, are not treated with uh, the ability to have tube feeding. Essentially, the doctors have decided through some studies that they, they don't generally uh, do tube feeding. But Leah was still mobile. She could walk. We were still living life on the move. And so we convinced the doctors to uh, to get a tube feed. And so we were able to feed her and, and sustain her for another year and a half or so. And then unfortunately, we got to the point where with the ALS kicking in, her mobility really declined and her uh, bodily functions, you know, stopped working. And, and ultimately, she lost the ability to breathe. So mm-hmm. It was a, a downward spiral, but she was always positive, graceful, and we, we tried to figure out how to make life the best possible every you know twist and move.
1: That was really pretty. I like the steps analogy the best. What do you think watching it day after day was the hardest part?
2: The hardest part for me was thinking about the future without my wife. And so it was... Really easy for me to kind of shift to being a problem solver. So when she would wander out of the house, I could figure out how to get locks on the doors and alarms and all this other stuff. But once I shifted my brain and trying to go to sleep at night or something like that and started thinking about a future without her, it was unbearable. Mm
1: -hmm. And now that you're living in this place that you thought was unbearable, how are you coping?
2: Um, I guess as best as can be expected, you know, I think I have an amazing support system, my kids, my family members in the church, and some of my colleagues, you know, really take care of me. So I feel, you know, I do the best that I, you know, is possible. I never thought that I would outlive my wife. So mm-hmm. the concept of having to do stuff on my own is, is, is a struggle. And, and to be honest with you, I feel selfish because, um, you know, when I was taking care of my wife for almost five years, you focus on the other person and you focus on their needs. And then after that person is no longer there, you naturally focus on your own needs. Right. But I struggle with that on a day to day basis because it's hard to be selfish.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Especially after coming off of five years of caregiving, it must feel so foreign to be like, what? I still exist. Yeah. I can see how that would be a little.
2: Well, scripture says to become one, right? So to become one flesh. So the hardest thing for me to deal with was how do you operate as a half a person?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And when the day is done, are you, what's, how how do I phrase this? One thing I learned in school for my master's is somebody who is in grief and dealing with, you know, the loss of a spouse, they find it hard to matter. So like, if I eat dinner by myself and nobody sees it, like, does it matter if I'm changing my sheets? Like, does that even, does that matter? Like, does what, What's important now? Do you think you're finding what matters to you?
2: I'm still struggling with that, right? So, you know, what am I going to do when I grow up? And, you know, what what is, what is the future look like for me? Mm-hmm. I think the challenge I face just on a, a day-to-day level is it's very difficult from getting home from work mm-hmm. to going to bed.
1: Yeah, the evenings.
2: And the thing I get concerned about is, am I wasting time? Mm -hmm. Right? So I've got four or five hours or whatever. I mean, when you're at work, you're at work, but I have four or five hours that I'm at home. And if I just eat dinner and watch TV and read something and then go to bed, have I wasted a day of my life?
1: Mm -hmm. One thing that I think would be interesting because we're learning from a uh, spouses' outlook is what. What was it like for you to become both mom and dad to your four kids?
2: I don't. I don't think that I ever have attempted to fill the mother role, um, recognizing that it's a big gap in our family. I. Th- I think the answer to that question is I recognize that there was a missing energy and life as a result of the changes that were going on with Leah. And I personally struggled with how I could personally fill that gap and recognize that I don't have that same ability to be as fiercely protective and engaged as, uh, as Leah was with her kids because um, uh, it's just not the way I'm structured. So I definitely perceived that, that there was a missing element, and I think that element is missing today. And I definitely have recognized the, uh, in my grandson that my wife would have been the most amazing grandmother ever. And so as a result, I have to do double to mm-hmm. be able to make up for a little bit of what she would have done with her grandson.
1: You get to do double.
2: I get to do
1: double.
2: (laughs) I have the blessing to do double.
1: So I have had many a talk with Maria about what a caregiver is. And we, I don't want to say argued because we don't fight, Um, but we, (laughs) we disagreed a lot on what a caregiver is. And I felt like I wasn't a caregiver because I wasn't there for my dad every day. But to me... You set the bar very high for the rest of the caregivers because you stepped up, you did what needed to be done, but most importantly, which we don't, I don't know if we've ever heard is you guys really celebrated life and doing things that maybe you wouldn't typically do. And you let Leah Live the way she wanted to live with a terminal diagnosis, and that takes a very unselfish person. So I know Maria holds you up there, but now I do too. So don't uh, don't shatter our dreams here, okay? Because you're like number <laughs> one caregiver. <laughs> I think it would be really interesting to just sort of pick your brain and see if you could give one piece of advice to this community of caregivers, what would you say?
2: Oh, you have to cut me down to just one.
1: Okay. You could have two.
2: Can I have two? Okay. (laughs) If If I have two, the first one is live life on the move. So we decided that we weren't going to have this disease essentially shut us down into a bedroom and close our life down into our darkness. We really made a conscious decision. It probably evolved over time, but that we were going to do stuff. And that was the way we were going to live our life was to do things and not just retreat. So we went to the Cape. We went to... Um, Lake Winnipesaukee. We had the whole family there. We rented a house. We saw double rainbows. We climbed <laughs> mountains. We went camping. We went to uh, Ireland. O- over time, we went to Ireland with a baby. Uh, you know, I took her to London with my best friend and his uh, his wife, and we just kept moving, and we just had to make adaptations to the types of things we could do and how we would do them, whether it was pace, amount of stuff or whatever, but we were we were enjoying life and, and I think that is something I would recommend to to everybody um, that's listening is that just because you have a diagnosis doesn't mean you have to stop. The second thing I would recommend is that we all need help to get through this journey and so we need a support structure. And we need more than we probably, some of us would ask for. So for me, you know, one of the first things that Katie Brandt suggested is, you know what, your wife, you should get a companion for your wife. It'll give you a couple hours a day, a week. She can come in, spend some time with your wife and, you know, then go to the store or whatever. And I looked at her and I was like, my wife doesn't need a companion. I'm my wife's companion. And that was very difficult for me to overcome was because I don't want somebody else coming into my relationship as we're going through this traumatic thing. So after a while, I finally listened to Katie and I brought in this companion and it made all the difference for two reasons. One, it gave me a a respite. But more importantly than that, it actually gave Leah somebody else to interact with because now her world was getting smaller. She wasn't able to interact with people. She couldn't communicate with people in the same way. And it gave her somebody that she could spend quality time with. And then that evolved over time when you know it got a little bit more difficult. And Katie suggested, well, maybe, some elder daycare would work. And you could take her there three days a week. And of course, I fought that again, until I realized that was absolutely the best thing. And then even though she couldn't interact with any of the other people in the room to do the games and singing and dancing and stuff that they did as part of their activities, she was in her 50s, they were in their 80s. But when she walked in the room, the room lit up she would go kiss people, she would smile, and everybody was happy that Leah was there. And I know that her life was better, that she was able to spend time with those people. So the the second takeaway is really recognize that adding people into your support structure and giving opportunities to engage other people is really important for people with FTD.
0: That was really well said. I also want to add to the first point. My dad didn't just do like not just, but you know, we did all these trips and maximized every summer and like did as much as we could. But like, even up until when my mom died, my dad would put her in this handicap van that he bought and they would drive up to York Beach, which is like an hour and a half from here, and they would just go sit on the beach. Like, literally, I feel like my dad did as much as he could to make her feel as normal as possible. And truly maximize the time like even when she was dying he's like bringing a christmas tree to her bed so i just think you're a superhero but anyway i say that every
2: episode thanks babe
0: i would love if there's nothing more i would love to
1: shift into who leah was before please okay Okay. my favorite part of the episode and i'm gonna jump in even though we normally want to find out who she kind of was i want to know through your eyes what she was like as a mother.
2: She was the most ferociously protective, engaged mother. She earned the nickname Meme. I'm not exactly sure how that name got to her, but it it reflected who she was and how she engaged her kids. So even though they might not be kids anymore, all four of them were attached to her. And uh, two of them, Eleni and Joanna, She called them her magnets as if they were literally hugging her legs and sticking to her throughout the day. But uh, she was very engaged and she demonstrated love in every way. She did not want to be a disciplinarian. She wanted the one thing for her kids to know is that she loved them.
1: That's my all time favorite question of the entire podcast is what they were like as a parent. But now I would love to know how you and Leah met.
2: Oh, how do we condense this into a short kind of story here? (laughs) (laughs) I was a young midshipman at the Naval Academy and Leah was uh, attending the University of Maryland. I happened to be dating one of her sorority sisters, but it wasn't really a thing. We decided that we weren't going to date any longer, but she gave me a ticket to a party at their sorority. So it was a cold uh, February afternoon and, you know, maybe the 13th, 14th, 15th in uh, Annapolis. We had nothing to do. And so I had to stick it. And so I rounded up a bunch of my midshipman buddies and we were off to College Park to hang out at the sorority. It happened to be a crush party. So every girl got a chance to invite three guys. So they stacked the deck. So I came in. And we, uh, we were able to uh, meet some people. We danced with some folks. I, I danced with this beautiful Greek girl with this red checkered dress. And uh, we had an awesome time. And then she left the party, she was gone. So I just hung around and poured a few beers for other people that were at the party. And then after a little bit, I decided to leave. And as I was walking out the big front door of the sorority house, she was walking right back in at that very same time. And 35 years later, we spent a beautiful 35 years together. So uh, there's other details there, but it was an amazing. Uh, but
1: we, we got to the, the keep the podcast PG. We got to keep the podcast PG. So, okay. So you guys met in the doorway again. And yep. how long till you asked her to marry you?
2: <sighs> it was probably nine months later.
1: No. Yeah. And what did you love most about her?
2: I loved her eyes because when she looked at me, they sparkled.
1: Oh, in the checkered dress too. Did she keep it?
2: She did. Actually, okay, the kids good. used it for like dress up in their oh, in a dress up uh, <laughs> closet down the basement. You know, with uh, you know the bell dress and yes. the the uh, sorority dress.
0: So I guess like. What I don't know is like what she was like, like as a young woman and you guys were about to have kids. And like, what was that like starting out? You guys moved out to California. Like, what was she like? (laughs) Wait, (laughs) Gary
1: and Leah lived in California.
2: Oh, yeah. San Diego and San Francisco.
1: Oh, that's right. I remember the Navy sweatshirt. But I didn't know Leah was with you. Oh, yeah. Which part did she like better, San Diego or San Francisco? San Diego. That's right, girl. All right.
2: So so uh,
1: sorry, answer Maria's question. But hello. Like, what is Frank? So
2: I have to start with her father drove her to school every day of her life through senior year of high school. So she grew up in a very protected world. It was it was a departure from the expectation that she could get married to a non Greek boy. Uh, In fact, when I went uh, and asked for her father, asked her father for her hand in marriage, uh, I was dressed in my little midshipman outfit and standing in front of him. And he was like five foot tall, looking up at me. He had these big Popeye arms, big muscles. He looked at me uh, and he said, not all the ships in the Navy will protect you if you hurt my daughter. And I was like, this dude can back it up. So uh, anyway, I'm sure we'll cut that. But No, don't Um,
1: cut
2: that. Don't cut that. So um, so anyway, she she led a very protective life up until the point that she you know went to college, and the fact that her parents even let her go to college was you know surprising because she just led a very sheltered life. So the idea that she was going to get married to a naval officer, move to San Diego, three thousand miles away, live independently was a shocker for everybody. Um, So. Leah, you know, really blossomed, uh, you know, after we got married. You know, of course, I was at sea a lot on the ship, and uh, and she got a job at a place called Barber and Barber, which is a dentist office in uh, San Diego. There, she made some friends and uh, you know developed relationships out there that she never would have been able to develop if she had been in the protective world of her community back in Rockville Maryland we were there for a couple of years we really enjoyed the life in san diego everybody wanted to come hang out with us when we lived in san diego go to the beaches and it was truly you know just like the eagle said you know you can check out anytime you'd like but you can never leave so everybody wanted to stay in the hotel california um, We moved up to San Francisco, had a home port change up there. Everybody wanted to come visit us in in San Francisco too. But nobody realized that the beaches in San Francisco are very different than the beaches in Southern California. And so that was a different experience. But, uh, you know, she was very independent as I was going to see on the ship. And um, she became pregnant with this beautiful little girl, uh, Maria.
1: I had no idea that you were born in California, Maria. What? How I did was... you not know that? Well, I'm sorry. I've only known <laughs> you for a year. I, I guess know. We've but never chatted it, about where we were born? It's never come up.
0: <gasps> you should yeah. have
1: left. Okay. No, but this we isn't
0: left very quickly, didn't we?
1: <laughs> so tell me, tell me what Maria, and then who?
2: Maria, then Richard, then Aleni, then Joanna.
1: And Maria, plug your ears. Do you think Leah had a favorite child?
2: Oh, this is a game that our kids always play <laughs> as to who's the favorite <laughs> child or not. I know I, who it is. I,
0: you don't have to say me. who it
2: is. I, I, I'm not going to answer the question. Uh, I plead for
1: Okay, I'll answer my question. Every parent has a favorite kid. Every parent does.
2: I think if you took a look at some pictures in our family albums, it would be very easy for you to figure it out.
1: <laughs> I think I already know who it is. Maria's told me. But I just had to know because I, I have a favorite kid. Maria has a favorite kid. Mine's a little easier to pick, but yeah, my parents have a favorite kid. Um, Okay.
2: I don't have a favorite child. Yeah, you do.
1: Every parent does. (laughs) Let's reel it back in. I feel like I know Leah because I know Maria so well, but what was her personality? What was she like?
2: She was very bubbly. She liked to talk a lot and engage and think and Uh, laugh. She had a very hearty laugh. My brothers talk about that all the time about when they'd hear her laugh. Oh, there's Leah someplace (laughs) in the house enjoying her life. So she was very bubbly, happy um, and engaged.
1: And as a wife, how would you describe her?
2: You know, extremely loving, very protective of me. And, uh, you know, we had uh, a lot of beautiful interactions and one of the most enjoyable was uh, from very early on we played a game of I love you so I would say I love you and she'd say I love you more and then I'd say I love you most and she'd say I love you more than Steve's ice cream and I'd say with mint chocolate chip in it and then You know, we we essentially ended up, you know, I love you infinity or whatever. But if you see uh, in our house, um, you know, all of our house in different places, you'll see I L U M, and so that's how we kind of connected with each other was saying I love you most.
1: Maria, do you remember your parents like being very affectionate with each other when you were growing up? Do you
0: does this love story does it hold weight? Yeah, tracks. Yeah, tracks. Okay, okay. Just Um, making sure. Well, I think. You know, now that I have my own family, I think I can look back and see that my parents always functioned as, like, a unit. And I think that is kind of where I saw, like, their love and, like, respect for each other that they – truly functioned like as one
2: mm-hmm. you ne-
0: it was never like one against the other it was like <laughs> us versus them i don't know <laughs> it was like it kids versus was- <laughs> <first> parents <laughs> no they just i always thought they had a beautiful love story before my mom was ever diagnosed mike and i dedicated our first the first like dance at our wedding to my parents Um, And they danced to their wedding song. We got married the same weekend as my parents' 30th wedding anniversary because I was like, this is good juju. Like, these people worked out. So, yeah, let's pick it. So They
2: even got the sword that we used to cut the cake at our wedding. And they had a, a replica cake at their wedding that they had Leah and I cut, which was beautiful.
1: Wow, you guys are like a love story movie. I didn't know that Maria. Why have you never, what do you mean? Me what do you mean? You've never said that. Oh, I guess I just thought you knew. I don't know. I mean, if I think a thought, then do you think the same thought? Sometimes um, <laughs> Depends who <laughs> depends what we're thinking. Um, so we know the life of Leah. What was her favorite pastime?
2: Well, I don't know if it was a pastime or an obsession, but, um, you know, she, when she was younger, she was told that she couldn't be a teacher and that she was not allowed to do art. So uh, probably 20 years into our marriage, all of a sudden it just blossomed and, uh, and she became an artist um, in, in a beautiful way. She's a mixed media collage, uh, all kinds of different art forms. She, was, uh, she took the nickname Art Junk Girl, which is a beautiful uh, connection of terms related to what the kids used and kind of the way she thought about doing art it wasn't this perfection kind of activity. It was assembling things that she thought were beautiful. And in some cases, other people might not have thought were beautiful into these beautiful pieces of art with her words and journaling and and all that. So our house became full of art. Rooms in our house got taken over as her art studios and even got named the Hallmark Room because that's where she watched her movies on Hallmark and did her artwork. Uh, mm-hmm. So we saw her You know, blossom as an artist. And uh, one of her favorite sayings was because that she posted a lot of her art on law, online, she had many, many blogs, hundreds of blogs and sharing on how she did artwork. She had a very strong following. So she used to say, I'm so much cooler online.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> she did say that all the time we didn't even realize until at some point we we're like oh there's like 30 people commenting on this and people freaking out when she like sends them like fan mail or remember she'd like send stuff to people
2: yeah ephemera
0: <sighs> yeah it was oh my gosh, she was very humble what do you think meme would think of remember me
2: i think she would think that remember me is a really cool use of technology to (laughs) communicate with people and and really do it in a way that connects with people. Because I think that's what she did with her blog, is she was connecting with people and sharing her art. And I think that's exactly what you guys are doing, is is you're sharing the awful diagnoses, but really pointing towards the beauty of remembering people and, uh, and the lives that they lived.
1: I have a curveball, and I don't know if Leah, I know she liked nicknames and slogans and all this. So I'm hoping we oh, can. Oh yeah. Okay. So my dad's was to accept the good. That was his thing that he would always tell me. There's always good. What, what was Leah's slogan?
2: I would say, I would have to create one, but I would say it, it's something about get out there and do art, be a creative being. She didn't say it exactly like that. Maria, maybe you got a different way of saying it, but she tried to convey to everybody just don't sit on your butt, get out there and do it.
0: And also just, I feel like she found beauty in the mundane. She would say that, like write about that in her blog. So like I would add on to that, like get out there and like look outside and like maybe you'll notice something you haven't noticed before. Like, right. Is that good? Yeah, that's great. Okay. And the
1: famous Remember Me question
0: How do you
1: think Leah would want to be remembered?
2: I believe that Leah would want to be remembered as a fiercely loving mother who took care of her children and knew that they were completely loved.
1: And in also true Remember Me fashion, except with a twist, give us the meat and potatoes of this episode, Gary. Can you share what we get to? Here from Leah.
2: I have two things. So um, I'd like to read from one of Leah's blogs. She had several hundred on her type pad for Art Junk Girl. And this is one part of, uh, of one of those blogs. I think children are the most magnificent beings on the planet and that we should do everything we can to protect, nurture, love and support them as much as humanly possible. Children have everything to teach us. Just talk to one today. They will teach you something. I promise. Tell them they are awesome. They will remember it forever. I promise.
0: Good one. <laughs> it was. You okay, Rachel? I needed
1: to hear that today. It's been a hard parenting day. Um, now, I can't wait for this one.
2: So, I think it's appropriate for Leah who had FTD with PPA and lost the ability to speak, to actually speak in her own words. As many people will recognize, a very special book that we read to our kids every day. And we always broke down crying at the end. I'll love you forever. i love you forever. I'll like you for always. i like you for always. As long as I'm living.
0: I'm
2: with living. My baby you'll be. My baby you'll
0: be. Thank you everyone who shared their story this season, who supported us, who sent us amazing messages, who joined remembers only It has been an incredible season, an incredible experience over the last year, and we're going to keep going. We've got a lot more in store. We're taking a short, sweet two-month holiday break. To gear up for the next season, but in the meantime we still have some amazing content in Remembers Only, so be sure to check that out. Thank you again for everything. Keep spreading the word. If you want more information on extra podcasts during the break and our awesome events, dementia tips, grief room, all of the goodness in Remembers Only you can check that out at remembermeftd.com slash join ro if you want to connect with us on instagram follow us at remember me podcast this podcast is produced by maria kent beers and rachel martinez and the beautiful music you hear is a song called so damn lucky by bailey kent